Good morning, Grace. I have been privileged to read the Word of God with you this morning. I'm going to do my best to slow down. I am a fast reader. We're going to read from Acts 11, 19 through 30, and then Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, are, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the man of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This too took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now we will read Acts 13, one through three. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrite, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hand on them and sent them out. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, church. We're in the middle of a series called Koinonia. And koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship. And we've been looking at what the, the word actually means, not what we kind of typically think that it means, you know, potlucks and things like that. That fellowship actually is a beautiful biblical term. It's a really um, a powerful term that is the foundation for how we know one another and relate to one another and how we know God and relate to God. In the last two weeks, we have seen just how significant fellowship is, koinonia is, for growing in the Christian life together. Uh, so just real quick recap, a quick uh, definition of fellowship, our working definition of fellowship or koinonia from the scriptures that we've been studying is this, sharing in the life and mission of the Trinity together with other believers. So that's the vertical component and the horizontal component. We share in the life of the Trinity, the very life of Jesus in us by His Spirit, and the mission of the Trinity, the very thing that He has been doing all along the Godhead. We are called together with each other 
into that. And we also saw last week how fellowship always involves sacrifice. It's always a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared mission. And so that's what Acts 2 showed us last week when we looked at the birth of the church, right? And we saw how fellowship really was the foundation for that community, and it was, it was incredibly compelling. It tells us at the end of Acts 2 that the church grew tremendously, both numerically and spiritually, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. Today I want to show you what, what has been God's plan all along for the New Testament church. Namely, the spread of the gospel for the joy of all people by the multiplication of healthy churches. This has been God's plan all along. The spread of the gospel for the joy of all people on the world, around the world by the multiplication of disciples and healthy churches. So today's message is the birth of the church planting movement. This message is really born out of many months, uh, years actually, of prayerful discussion by your pastors as we have wrestled with what does God call us to? How should we live out the specific calling of this local church, the mission of this church? And as we've shared it with all the elders uh, in recent meetings, I've been tasked with sharing and laying out the vision for why Grace Baptist Church should be a church planting church, both locally and globally. Let me share a couple statistics. Did you know that in the United States, six to 10,000 churches close every year? Admittedly, it's hard to get an accurate, if you, if you look that up, uh, some will say it's a little bit lower, a little bit higher, they're not sure. It's hard to get an accurate reporting, but, but even if it is a little bit lower, even if it's 5,000, shouldn't that matter to us? Hundreds of churches are going to close today. Thousands over this year, maybe more in this because of the pandemic. Did you know that there are 7,400 people groups who have never heard the gospel? And yet, according to Lifeway Research, only one in 10 churches was directly involved in helping plant a new church in 2018. Here's my point. Unless churches like ours catch a vision for planting new churches and revitalizing dying churches, then we will actually be failing to do what the Lord Jesus himself commissioned us to do. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who lament, rightfully so, what is happening in our society. And whether it's the moral decay that they see or the denial of God's natural law at work in our world or the loss of decency or humility. And I feel it too. Right? We live in perilous times. But the question is, what should we do? That's the question. Should we, A, go on defense should we hunker down, separate from the culture, create our own little utopia so we can guard ourselves against the insidious effects of an increasingly godless society? Is that the answer? Should we, B, go on offense and engage in culture wars? Condemning everyone who holds a different position than us or trying to vote our people into office? Look, I don't have all the answers. 
And by the way, there are books on both of those sides and say, this is what you ought to do. And you probably have read some of them. If you go on Facebook or any social media, you're going to be bombarded with those views. Good grief. It's an echo chamber. Here's what I know. God's word is not ambiguous about the mission. You say, Mark, you're talking about stuff that's beyond your calling. And some, some people have said that. Stick to the Bible. I am. I'm going to stick to the Bible. Okay? That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to hide behind this book. Because Jesus has made it very clear what our mission is as Christians. And that's what I want to show you of today and convince you of. The birth of the church planting movement. Lesson number one. The New Testament mandate is that disciples make disciples and churches plant churches. We're in Acts 11. And what, we, what Antonio just read in Acts 11 is a far cry from what we read in Acts 2 last week, if you were here. Acts 2, the church was growing, and it says at the end of Acts 2 that the church had favor with all the people. Right? It was this compelling witness, and, and people, thousands of people were coming to Christ, and it was this beautiful thing. And, but by Acts 11 now, a lot has changed. The Jewish religious leaders were angry by what they saw as this new religious sect of Judaism claiming to follow a Messiah who died on a cross and had risen from the dead. Claiming a message like that kind of upsets the norm. And eventually these Christians, these believers in Jesus, started experiencing persecution, as we see in verse 19. In Acts 11, sorry, in Acts 7, the Jews literally stoned a, a follower of Christ named Stephen after he preached the gospel to them. Interesting to note in Acts 7, when, when they are literally stoning Stephen to death, there is a man watching and giving approval for the execution of Stephen, and his name was Saul. The very Saul who will show up in the text here. In Acts 7, this Saul was one of the religious leaders and, and he was in charge of ravaging the church, it says, having people dragged off to prison, having people killed for following Jesus and claiming the name of Christ as the Messiah. And then Saul experiences this radical conversion after the risen Jesus appears to him and rescues him by sheer grace. And here in Acts 11, we see the persecution continues. And yet, and yet, while this persecution is horrific and gut-wrenching, it actually has the opposite effect that the Jewish leaders intended. Did it not? It actually leads to the spreading of Christians out from Jerusalem to the surrounding cities and regions. It says in verse 19, look, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose from Stephen's stoning, they were scattered, they were sent out. All, it says as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a city that, that will play an important role in God's plan for the church. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was also, also a bastion of pagan hedonism. Uh, think of uh, Las Vegas on steroids. And this city is the very city that God, God sovereignly chooses to be the birth of this church planting movement. This is the genesis of missions as we know it. 
But here's what we need to understand about what's happening. The persecution of these Christians actually serves to spread the gospel and not hinder the gospel. It's counterintuitive. Jesus gave us the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 and 19. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. He says, go make disciples who will make disciples of all nations, all people groups. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus, after, after he ascends in heaven, he comes back and he teaches his disciples for 40 days and he says to them in Acts 1.8, wait here in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here, and Judea and all of Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It was not ambiguous. It was very clear. Your mission is to go. Your mission is to start here and spread out. It was God's plan all along that Christians just like us would go to all the places of the earth to make disciples and plant churches. And if you read the book of Acts, you find that, that almost every major movement outward from the church was initiated by persecution. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is serious about getting the gospel spread. That God is serious about disciples being made and God is serious about churches being planted. So much so that when his people are not taking seriously the call to go, God himself drives them out through persecution. You see, why, why are they being spread out? How does the church from Acts 2 to the church at the end where, where you got Paul going into Rome, how does it get there? It's not because the people are like, all right, let's do it. Let's keep going. No, they didn't want to. For whatever reason, they were kind of stuck. They're like, I, I don't know. We're, what are we, a ragtag group of disciples who used to be fishermen? And what are we supposed to And God says, hey, I gave you the Holy Spirit. You know what to do. I taught you. Go. Well, I'm not sure. All right, I'll, I can get you to go. And he does. And persecution, we find, doesn't hinder this movement of the church. It empowers it. It empowers it. And it's been true throughout church history. There's a quote that's attributed most often to Tertullian. He's one of the church fathers. Uh, he lived in the, around 200 AD is where, where he wrote this. It says this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, is what he wrote. And that was in 200 AD. In other words, when there's persecution and, and the killing of Christians who bravely go to their death without denying Christ, those who watch it are convicted themselves and they are converted. This has been largely too, through, true throughout church history that rather than squelch Christianity, persecution actually shows the true power, the true beauty of the Christian faith and it leads others to want to embrace it as well. It is counterintuitive, but it is true, church. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for right now? It means whatever you think is a hindrance to the gospel is likely no hindrance at all. That's what that means. Instead, that thing that you think is a hindrance can be used by the providence of God to shine forth the beauty of the risen Christ and lead others to treasure him above all else, even life itself.
Let me make this as practical as I can. Nothing that is happening right now in our world or in your life can be an excuse to scale back our commitment to spread the gospel. Nothing negates the commission to make disciples. Unless you can show me where that's true, okay? Again, I'm, I'm, try, I'm sticking to the book. Show me where it says that if, if, if there's a worldwide pandemic, everything needs to get shut down, including gospel witness. Show me. COVID is bad. I get it. Oh boy, do I get it as a pastor. It's bad. The political polarization is bad. The, the racial tension and, and, and injustice is bad. And I've heard a number of Christian leaders say, listen, we just need to hunker down and wait till it all blows over. No, 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 no. That's wrong. It is not biblical. It doesn't match up with the history of the church. It's in difficult times like right now that we all as a church must reaffirm our devotion to global evangelization, to church planting, and to missions no matter what the cost. Now is the time to make disciples and plant churches. Not next year, not when COVID is over, not when you get the right president in the White House, not when your life is better and you're in a different season in life, not when you get that relationship right now. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'm going to say it may be that God is providentially orchestrating all that is happening in our world and in your life for the very purpose of propelling us in the direction of filling, of fulfilling the Great Commission. We are sent ones. Today, yesterday, and tomorrow, that's who we are. It's our identity, and it doesn't change. Nothing changes that. My relational status doesn't change that. Who's in the governor's uh, mansion doesn't change that. Who lives in the White House doesn't change that. It doesn't matter what is happening. This is the call to make disciples and plant churches. Lesson two. God's kingdom advances as his word is proclaimed, as leaders are trained and churches established. Look what's happening here in this text. Verse 19, it says, Christians are spread out from Jerusalem and and most of them into these areas, these uh, Greek-speaking areas, right? Non-Jewish areas. And it says they share the gospel exclusively with Jews. They shared the word to no one except Jews. But then look at verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. These guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, they start sharing the gospel with Gentiles. Listen, you don't even know their names, do you? We know Barnabas and Saul later are leaders, but right now, you don't even know, we don't even know who they are. They go unnamed, which I think is beautiful. It's not even about them. These unnamed believers from Cyprus and Cyrene had no official direction to do this. They had not gone through any instructional program or evangelism training. There's no precedence about going to the Greeks, to to the Gentiles with the gospel. All they had was a burning passion for Christ that was contagious. They just simply couldn't speak, could not speak of Jesus, who he, that he came in the flesh, God in the flesh, died on the cross, took the punishment for sin, rose from the dead to prove his power over hell and the grave. And it says the hand of the Lord was upon them, and many Gentiles became Christians. 
So you have this group of Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in this important city of Antioch, far from Jerusalem, and the apostles get word about this, and they can't commute the 300 miles. They didn't have the live stream capability, thankfully. And so what do they do? They, they have to send people up there, right? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And, and Barnabas, if you know the story, if you actually know he's, a, he's known as a son of encourager. In fact, they, they name him Barnabas. His name is John, but they rename him Barnabas. You're a son of encourager. He's one of their best guys, as verse 24 tells us. He's godly. He's humble. He's gifted. Maybe there were some in Jerusalem in that church who thought, man, I, I know God's doing a work up there in Antioch, but... But don't send one of our best guys. Don't send Barnabas. We need him here. No, we, we love him. We need him. Send somebody else. No, the church doesn't do that. They say, you know what? A new church, a new work is getting established in Antioch. We can tell the hand of the Lord is, is, at, is upon them. And so we're not going to send second string guys. We're going to send the very best out. The ones we have been training and investing in. And that was Barnabas. So you have all these new believers in Antioch, and they need to be organized. Many people are coming to faith. They need a unified vision. They need, they need an Acts 2 kind of vision. They need a clarity. What does it look like to be in fellowship with God? Right? They get saved, but listen, once you get saved, there's a lot you don't know. What does it look like to be in fellowship with God? What does it look like to be in fellowship with each other? Meaning, they needed to know what it means to be a church. And that's what Barnabas goes up there to do. He leads this church to get established. Verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was, he was, he was excited. He was, he was delighted. And he teaches them what it means to be devoted to the Lord and each other. He teaches them how to be a church. But notice what else he also does. As more and more people come to faith, so Barnabas realizes, I need help. And so what does he do? It says, verse 25, he goes up to Tarshish and invites Saul to join him in leading the church in Antioch. This shows incredible humility by Barnabas to admit he needs help in the task of leading and establishing this church. By this time, Saul had spent years as a follower of Jesus Christ now. He's incredibly gifted as a preacher and an apologist for Christ. And for a whole year, after Saul comes back and agrees to come down with Barnabas, they, they meet with the church, they train them, they teach them the, the word it says, they disciple them into greater maturity. For a whole year. There's something really important about the Antioch church that I want you to recognize. Are there any apostles there? You hear of any of the apostles? James, John... No, Peter, you hear of any of them going up there? No. No. They sent out leaders who were trained under them. This is the Acts 2 movement spreading out. People getting converted, believers being established and equipped, devotion to God's word, devotion to each other, or the ordinances and prayer, and it spreads out to more and more places. Listen, Christian, don't lose sight of, your, of the power of your witness for Christ. Antioch was evangelized not by apostles, but, but by ordinary believers like you and I. Empowered by the Spirit and compelled by the love of Christ, 
You can be witnesses for Christ, and you could be a witness for Christ that may end up sparking a movement that turns a whole city upside down. I, do you actually believe that? I know, you're, I know we're all comfortable wherever you live, whatever you're doing, right? You're like, hey, I got my own, my own thing going on. I go to church and all that. No, I'm talking about you saying, you know what, God? I'm laying it all out on the line. I don't know what you're calling me to, but I'm going to hold everything with open hand to, this, to ask you to, to give to me whatever you want or to send me wherever you want. I love what it says at the end of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that amazing? A church born out of persecution that had no apostles leading it, a church that was far from the home base in Jerusalem, this is where believers were first known as Christians. This was likely used as an insult from outsiders to the early believers. Because the word Christian, they would have never claimed that for themselves because it has the word Christ in it. They would never have claimed Christ. But Christian means little Christ, a mimic of Christ. In other words, their lifestyle was so distinct from the world. It was so clearly aligned with the life and teaching of Jesus that they said the, the, the best way we can describe them is you were like little, little Jesuses running around. Little Christians, we're going to call you. These believers were living out what they had learned from Jesus. They were fulfilling the mission given to them and to us to represent Christ and to make him known. Question for us. Are we having such an impact for the gospel? Are we having such an impact on our community for the gospel that people would accuse us of being so aligned with the way of Jesus? Would we be accused of being Christians? Are you making the gospel audible through your witness and making the gospel visible through our fellowship? One last thing in this section here. In verses 27 to 30, we see some of the fruit that the teaching had on the faith of these believers. A prophet named Agabus predicts a coming famine for the whole region. And, and, and listen, this is a new church, right? This is a startup. This is a fledgling church. It's, it's, it's young. They, don't, they, don't, they haven't figured out how to do all this thing called Christianity yet. And what do they do? They decide, verse 29... The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They pool their resources. They don't say, you know what? We're pretty new. We should get a pass. We don't say, uh, are we the ones to help them? We're, I mean, they help plant us. Shouldn't they be helping us? No, they said, we need to send help to the church in Jerusalem. We know there are thousands of believers in that church, and many of them will need our help. And this church, this small church, sends financial aid to help the church in Jerusalem. I don't want to move past it because I think it's important to know this church, there's a capability and willingness to serve others even in newly established churches. It was an act of Christian fellowship, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared mission. Nobody forced them to do it, right? This isn't communism. This is a voluntarily giving of oneself to meet the needs of fellow Christians. And we see it all throughout Acts. I just want to ask you, is that your practice as well? Do you give generously to propel the work of the gospel forward, to help meet the needs of your fellow believers? 
Did you know we, we support about 40 missionaries and, or, and mission organizations as a church? Do you know how we fund that? By your faithful giving each week. And we get reports in every week from people all over the world telling us, here's what's going on. Here's what it's like in the trenches. Here's how to pray for us in Japan, in Papua New Guinea, in South America, in the Middle East. Here's how to pray for us in, in Virginia Beach area. Here's, how, here's what we're going through. Please join us. And we're like, yes, yes and amen. We will stand with you because we believe Jesus' commission is for us and we want to take it seriously. Lesson three. Our church is called, I'm getting more specific now, more personal. Our church, Grace Baptist Church, is called to raise up leaders and send them out to plant and revitalize churches. I added the word revitalize to make it clear that sometimes what is most strategic for God's kingdom is to not just birth a new church in an area, which we are very willing to do, should be willing to do, but to come alongside a potentially struggling church or dying church and help revive it, to bring it to health. Every, every couple months, I get a report through the local Baptist Association that says how many dozens of churches in this, in this area, Maryland, Delaware area, that don't have a pastor or who are in danger of dying. And I get to look at that list. And I, and I think, what? I, we should be doing something. We should be doing something. We will. Unnamed, ordinary believers take the gospel to Antioch, and as a result, a church is established in the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and Antioch becomes this new hub for further missionary work to the furthest regions of the world. And you say, well, where's the idea of fellowship here? I thought this was about koinonia. The word doesn't show up in the text, but it is in this story. You see, in Galatians 2, Paul gives us further details. Paul, who is the Saul that Barnabas goes and gets and brings him to Antioch, Paul gives us further details of what happens in Galatians 2. I'll just summarize verses 1 and 9 from Galatians 2. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. And when James and Cephas, who's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, or to the Jews. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem affirmed the work of Barnabas and Paul to reach Gentiles with the gospel. And it says they gave them the right hand of the fellowship. It's, it's a symbol of their fellowship, of their partnership in the life and the mission of the Trinity. So now look at chapter 13, 1 to 3. This is the first commissioned church plant in the history of the church. Did you know that? The first time that a congregation makes a deliberate decision to send out workers inspired by the Spirit to establish a new church in another location. You say, what about Acts 11? Acts 11 was forced by persecution. Acts 13 is a prayerful, deliberate choice by that church body. And notice, it was the whole church. Now, when, now, in the church, it had prophets and teachers, and it says, while they, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, they were worshiping together. They were devoted to the Lord in prayer. Do you get why we've been emphasizing these things? And, God, and the God made it clear by His Spirit whom to send out. Listen, I just want to ask, this is kind of an aside, are we so, so devoted to praying together 
that, that when we pray together, we start to sense God's Spirit giving us wisdom and discernment on how our church can make the most impact for the gospel. There may be decisions that we need to make as a church that, that we will not be able to discern until we collectively are praying together and God, and God literally impresses upon our, our, our hearts, this is what I'm calling you to do, church. You can do it. You need to do it. And so, act, and so verse 2, they set, he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. The word set apart has a sense of releasing or sending away. The church was releasing these leaders from their work at Antioch and prayerfully su- supporting them in their God-given mission. And it says they symbolize this by the laying on of hands. Kind of like, we are, we, are, we are sending you out. We are partners. In, we're still koinonia, right? We're still together. We're still partnering. We don't forget who you are. We don't say, see you later. We say, Godspeed. We're going to stay in touch. We're going to stay partners in ministry together. And they do. Grace Baptist Church, this is the vision of God. This is the vision of the New Testament. This is the vision of your pastor elders. And it ought to be our vision collectively as well. We are called to do whatever we can as a church. To plant and revitalize churches locally and globally. It may be 50 miles down the road, it may be 10 miles down the road, or it may be 5,000 miles across the world. But it ought to be one of our highest priorities. A couple years ago, we did this with Faith Community Church in Harrisburg, PA. You probably know Fred and Jen Seifert as they were working with ABWE, a mission organization, sensing the burden to plant a church in that area, talking to us as they're sending church. And as a church, we said, yes, this is what God is leading. This is what we're doing. And now this church has begun. It's been birthed. And people are coming to Christ and getting baptized. And the church is being established. Praise God, we get to be a part of that work. I mean, literally, it's one of, it should be one of the highlights. You should pray with Thanksgiving today. Thank you that we can be a part of the work in Harrisburg. You are. You are a part of it. And to do this, it will take wisdom and courage and generosity and perseverance. And I'll just say, in the coming weeks, we're going to share an exciting opportunity that we believe as leaders that we, we want to put this call into action. So stay tuned. But here's the question I just want to end with. I want to leave you with. Is Jesus worth it? He said, Mark, this, this doesn't feel as personally relevant as personally. What am I supposed to do? I'm asking you personally, is Jesus worth it? I'm asking us as a church to ask, is Jesus worth the financial sacrifice it will take to train up leaders and start new churches? Is Jesus worth the hardships associated with maybe some of us in here giving up your career to pursue the Lord in full-time ministry? Is Jesus worth the time it will take to devote desperately seeking the Lord together in prayer to discern His will? Jesus will only be worth it to you when you are convinced that you are worth it to Him. Jesus will only be worth it to you when you are convinced that you are worth it to him. You see, Jesus could have been in heaven saying, boy, Antioch, i.e. the whole world, is really messed up. Really messed up. But you know, we kind of got a good thing going on as a trinity. 
We, we literally, we lack for nothing. Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect fellowship. And they could have said, good luck down there. Figure it out on your own. You won't. But you know what they did? Father, Son, and Spirit, the plan from all of eternity, stepped down out of the comfort of, 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 of unbelievable joy and peace and security. Jesus coming into our world, taking on human flesh, so that now, from that point on and forevermore, he will be the God-man. He will be human and God forever now. Because he came as a baby. Because he humbled himself. And he sacrificed everything. Literally everything. He's not, he's not, we're asking for us to give generously. Jesus was asked to give it all. Everything he had to make disciples and establish the church. And it cost him his very life. Listen, it was our unbelief. It was our anger, our sexual sin, our lying, our injustice, our whatever sin you want. It was all of our sin that put him on the cross. He died for you. He died for me. He died in our place. He took the, the rejection and the shame that we deserved. He took the guilt and the condemnation that we deserved. It says in 2 Corinthians, He who knew no sin became sin for us. Why? Because in the riches of his kindness, in the riches of his love, God decided from all eternity past that you and you and you and you and even me, that we were worth it. If that does not floor you, when I look in the mirror, I think, good grief. I feel like Paul sometimes. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this? Thanks be to God, he says. We have the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. You are worth the death of Jesus himself in order to bring you into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the church. He did that for you so that if you will admit his invitation, if you will admit, if you'll turn from your sin, turn from whatever you've been looking to, and receive Jesus by faith, you become a Christian, just like in Antioch. Someone who follows Jesus, who claims Jesus. And you know where Jesus will lead you when you become a Christian? Christian, you know where Jesus is going to lead you? In some way, in some form, in some way of your participation, he's going to lead you to people who don't yet know him. To communities both locally and globally that need a gospel witness and gospel fellowship. Will you follow him and is he worth it? Let me pray. Father, I do pray that everyone watching, everyone listening, everyone here, whatever stage of life, whatever our age, whatever trials we're going through, whatever we think is unfair in life, whatever we think should have been our life and is not currently our life, whatever is going on, God, I just pray that every one of us would be able to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? I know there are things going on in our lives personally right now that are just overwhelming, Lord. I know it. I 
I feel it for so many. And yet we know the answer. The answer is not just better education or a better government system or more money or more health. God, we know the answer is Jesus. You. We know that in you, is, in your presence, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Jesus, we know that when people get a hold of Christ, when, when you get a hold of them, it changes them. It changes us. We can say now, even with tears in our eyes and sorrows in our hearts, that to live is Christ and to die is gained. We can say that you are with us now and you will be with us forever. We can say that the worst that can happen to us, the very worst, is actually your grace ushering us into the greatest reality that we will ever know. And so, Father, because we have become all to you, I pray that you would become all to us. For the glory of your name right here in Bowie, for the thousands of people who don't know Christ that you have sent us to right here in this region, Crofton and Glendale and Laurel and Annapolis and Lanham. All of Maryland and the United States and all 200 plus countries, God, this is we pray that you would be all to us, that we might be faithful to your calling. Oh God, help us. Help us. We need help to do it. And I thank you that we have you to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.